0: This is Wes Craven, who wrote and directed Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which makes a lot of sense, just with some running comments on the making of the picture and behind the scenes and behind the script. The original opening of the picture was designed to be much more uh, gigantic and uh, involved Heather and her family walking through Griffith Park and, and uh, there was an enormous earthquake and the earth opened up and sort of swallowed her child and she grabbed him by one foot and it was dangling over space and uh, all of hell opened up. And at a certain point it became so incredibly expensive, uh, we had to cut it. And thus I was thrown onto what turned out to be a very fortuitous uh, decision, which was to use what we had uh, that is the actual set of, of uh, Freddy's ultimate hellish home as our opening as the opening of our picture and uh, use it as a sort of a nightmare within a dream within a nightmare and uh, thus we ended up on the very set that we end the picture on surrounded by the uh, the making of the picture and, the, and in many ways the, many times the uh, the actual crew members that uh, were involved in the making of the picture as well it turned out to be sort of the overriding theme of the picture that uh, there was very little difference between nightmares and movies uh, or at least horror movies and very little difference between uh, one's imagination and one's life and that uh, in order to control one's life you had to control your imagination and in order to control your nightmares you you had to control what they sprang from which was your actual life itself. Uh, speaking of uh, people and crew members and uh, members from the actual production uh, the principal, one of the most principal members is my uh, partner, business partner and the producer of the picture, Marianne Madelina. here sitting in her chair as she did every day and um, you know, having Heather saying, uh, "Marianne, I've got to go now." Uh, Marianne, with her, uh, with her head to a telephone, which is our sort of in-joke that uh, Marianne was constantly seen on her cellular uh, trying to call the orders for the scenes to coming, coming up in the uh, near future. But uh, Marianne and I have been working in partnership for um, almost ten years, and has been, she has been uh, really uh, my uh, guardian angel and uh, sort of getting us through all of the shoals of. Um, production and uh, also an inspiration for just uh, many of the creative ideas that come through uh, in the making of uh, my, R pictures. We decided also in this film to redesign Freddy so that uh, he would uh, be something that was completely other than the Freddy that was just limited to the movies themselves. The the concept being that the Freddy, Freddy was a symbol of something that was much larger and more ancient and that existed in real life so we designed um, a, a new wardrobe for him based on the old one, but uh, quite different. He, we gave him more stature, uh, more muscles, and uh, a new claw, which uh, of course was featured in this in this opening very very heavily. Also, just uh, thematically, I like the idea of uh, you know putting the child, sort of the the uh, symbol of innocence, into the sort of matrix of uh, young people who are making sort of nightmares for profit and for fun. And um, you know, even the parents scaring his child with a little pop-up uh, hand out of the Chinese food carton container. Now, thematically here, of course, it, what you have is the the creation sort of getting out of control, and the fact that uh, even those of us that, you know, make movies about scary things and and sort of have fun with it, are dealing with something that is essentially out of control in humanity itself, and that is our propensity for violence and sort of that devilish uh, subcurrent that runs throughout our history as human beings that um, I I have called Freddie, and many other artists have called many other things from Frankenstein to uh, the Gollum or you name it. Uh, We all try to put a name and a face on the the, uh, sort of drift towards evil that uh, runs throughout human history. Now here we begin a transition um, from the um, nightmare within the film to um, Heather waking up from a nightmare with the um, threatening of her actual husband, Chase, and her waking up in her own bed in, in the earthquake. Uh, and an interesting point with this whole theme of uh, earthquakes in, in Wes Craven's New Nightmare was that uh, this was written months before the actual earthquake in Los Angeles. We had no idea there was going to be an earthquake. Uh, it actually occurred uh, well into our shooting. Um, by early January, we were, uh, I would say, two-thirds through the film. And many of the crew sort of looked at me the day after, like, uh, what have you caused? But uh, to me, it always seemed, as a person living in Los Angeles uh, for quite a while, that, uh, you know, it was a great symbol of sort of the instability of the fabric of life itself, that, uh, you know, everything that you think is solid at any time can be challenged and become fluid. You can uh, be swimming in your pool one day, and the next day looking out and seeing it sloshing over the edges and realize that uh, nothing was quite as safe as you thought it was. Earthquake. We also have a, a, one of the classic themes from my films here is that the child knows more than the parents are willing to admit, the father especially acting like nothing has happened even though he realizes that he's been cut in the dream and is now cut, um, he acts like nothing nothing happened. Heather sort of intuits that that is what has happened but uh, she doesn't want to talk about it because of the child and therefore the child is sort of uh, unintentionally left on his own because he sees the truth quite clearly but the parents aren't willing to admit the painful truth and so he... Um, he runs a sort of a subcurrent of, uh, of innocence perceiving the evil, but not uh, being allowed to share in the perception of it with those that are supposed to protect him. Now, uh, here we have actual news footage from the uh, Northwards earthquake, which we cut into the film later after we had shot this scene, uh, when it obviously had already occurred, and we simply used uh, actual news footage of it. This little creation here, I actually sculpted myself in the oatmeal, but uh, nobody could quite get the look right. Uh, again, the child being way ahead of the parents here and knowing uh, that something is wrong and uh, has even put a face to it
1: just for a few hours. Will be with you
2: is there anything other than the obvious bother
0: It was very important to me to shoot in an actual house. this house was uh, in Tarzana, which was later very hard hit by the uh, by the earthquake but uh I wanted to be able to look out windows, I wanted to have a great sense of reality about this because the theme was uh, people in their real lives as opposed to people in their film life. So, um, we had original plans for building this set on a stage and having it gimbled and so forth for you know, putting forth the uh, sort of earthquake reality, but what we ended up doing is shooting in a real house and simply putting a lot of very large vibrator motors on pieces of furniture that would uh, shake and rattle them and we also Had a very elaborate system of the camera being mounted on bungee cords so that we could shake it whenever we wanted to. And ended up with, um, you know, a very realistic um, look of, of earthquakes.
1: Okay. I
2: don't. It doesn't mean that it can't be over.
1: But what if it isn't over?
2: Maybe you should tell me your dream.
1: Oh,
0: we looked a long time to find the uh, the right husband for Heather. This is one of the few places that we actually diverge from the reality. Uh, um, Heather's husband is, as a matter of fact, in special effects, he's a special effects makeup artist. In fact, he's um, worked with me many times from Serpent in the Rainbow to the current film I'm doing um, with Eddie Murphy. But. Uh, We made uh, Heather's husband in the movie a a special effects man from, uh, you know, mechanical special effects. Heather did have some reservations about playing this role so close to her actual life, and it really is a, um, it's a credit to her and her courage that she allowed us to portray so much that was very closely uh, parallel to her actual life. She has a son that age. um, She has a husband in the same occupation. Uh, Many of the things, uh, in addition to the fact that she obviously was the actress from the first picture, were very, very close to to Heather's real life. Um, we had to make a, just a very few changes that uh, Heather felt were so personal that uh, you know she didn't want them in the picture. But uh, by and large, she really opened her, her private life to the making of this film as well as her professional life. I'll be back in no time. I think it's also a, 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 a good example of Heather's ability to expand into a much more real role than she uh, had in the two nightmare films. Certainly the first film, I thought she played a wonderful teenager, but uh, Subsequent film, I believe Nightmare 3, I, I felt she was a little, bit, a little bit stiff and a little bit uh, n- narrowly used. But in this film, she expands into a, a wonderful um, range of emotions from uh, tender caring to wisdom to uh, being able to register the terror. For instance, here where the earthquake uh, after effects uh, cause the rocking of her own house and the, and the uh, cracks in the wall that resemble the slashes from Freddie's glove. And this begins a serious sort of uh, intervention of film reality into the reality of Heather's life with the cracks in the wall resembling the slashes of Freddie to the first appearance of Heather in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Seeing her, uh, her girlfriend Tina in the hallway of her school uh, beckoning her down into the cellar for the first time that she sees Freddie. and then with the um, beginning of the phone calls uh, the first time the audiences has seen them but um, as the story implies that these have been going on for some time mysterious calls from somebody that sounds very much like freddie which um, you know at first is thought to be uh, simply the work of a demented fan and then uh, as the picture unwinds we begin to realize that it is actually freddie himself inserting himself into the real life of of uh, Heather Langenkamp, the actress, through sort of the uh, portal of the uh, telephone system. Someone's coming. What? Now, this is an example of a combination of uh, of a vibrator on top of the uh, counter that sends the oranges crossing. Um, a camera shaking, and then a, a single piece of monofilament rocking the uh, the pots and pans, and you end up with a feeling of, of great reality with the earthquake. Also, the child, of course, saying the plot point of someone is coming. In this case, it's the uh, the babysitter, and it's an interesting sidelight here on the backstory of the script and development of the script of Nightmare 7 that uh, the babysitter originally was um, designed to be the um, sort of the the chief threat and killer. And she was going to be someone who was sort of taken over by Freddie at an early point and being used as his puppet. And so um, from her very entrance, there is sort of an edge to this character. Later when we decided that we wanted to have Freddie himself be the villain uh, throughout, we we allowed this character still to remain kind of uh, with an edge and and a little bit uh, doubtful as to what her real uh, motives would be. And uh, so she's left with a lot of very strange looks and sort of brooding looks early on in the picture, and then later on redeems herself by, um, you know, punching out the nurse and defending uh, Dylan um, in her death scene. Heather, what is
1: it?
0: It's a kind of theme out here of, of the child. Why, why do you leave me so much? Of uh, you know, of innocence being abandoned, uh, and on different levels. Heather, Heather is abandoned by her husband in the sense for his job, who goes off to a distant location, and then the child is abandoned by the mother, who's off to do, um, you know, interviews on the making the 10-year anniversary of the making of the first nightmare. If you hear a dog barking in the background, incidentally his name is Grip, and he's 10 years old. Uh, he was brought to me by the Key Grip. Of Nightmare on Elm Street 1 at the rap party. I was found walking along the street. And uh, so uh, in my house, there's a lot of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street history, including my dog, who uh, is, shares the same anniversary as this film.
2: Don't answer it.
1: Hello.
0: Look at this look. Would you Would you buy a used car from this babysitter?
1: Gotta
0: go. me. This is a, for for those of us in the, in the film business. This is a very real moment where, you know, you are constantly going away for long periods of time. The film business requires tremendously long hours, and uh, all of us in our personal relationships with uh, either men and women or with children uh, are finding ourselves in the conflict of having to go away a great deal and uh, leave our leave our loved ones alone. So it's a very real moment for Heather here as a, as an actress and as a character. Oh, I'm really
1: sorry. My nerves are a little
0: raw these It's Okay. Days. Now a second red herring here is the introduction of the limo driver. Who is uh, portrayed as being quite questionable and sort of gum chewing and half flirtatious and half evil. And with what he says to her, I think it's uh, it's 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 one of the uh, One of the things I've felt in my own career is that uh, sometimes you get somebody coming up to you at a convention or after a screening or whatever saying, I I really love your pictures, and you say, oh, that's very nice, thank you very much, and then they'll start off on what they really liked was some grisly scene that, you know, you start to get a cold chill down your back and say, oh my God, uh, you know, with fans like that, who needs stalkers? So, um, you know, again, it's part of the ambivalence of doing films about about violence. Um, I always feel like I'm doing things Films about things that really scare me, and uh, and yet sometimes you run into uh, people that watch the films that uh, you know really like the sense of evil and uh, are much more identified with that side of it than they are with uh, the sort of uh, Heather or Nancy side. That uh, incidentally was the nephew of Danny Elfman, the composer. Uh, his name is uh, Bodie Elfman. Elm Street thing I mean the original Sam Rubin was very excited about doing this Sam Rubin of course is a um, an actual personality from television in Los Angeles and um, he just did Sam Rubin here and uh, I think it came across very very accurate as this sort of very intense never never breaking eye contact lots of hand motion type of uh, you know personality that is not aware at all of uh, sort of what's going on in the back of the uh, interviewee's mind, you can see how there's a sort of nervous look when the child's name is mentioned, not wanting to have that dragged into publicity and
2: you
0: know, a part of her quandary as a character.
2: No. I, I'm sure people ask you this all the time, is there going to be another... Now this scene is
0: setting up, of course, the difference between the, um, the real Freddy, uh, if you will, and the screen Freddy. Um, my feeling was that over the course of uh, the pictures, uh, the character of Freddy sort of became um, pulled away from the original sort of primal terror and made into a a bit more of a jokester and a a buffoon so when we bring him out here we were um, we allowed him to get very broad and uh, there's always a during screenings there was a real shock on the part of the audience to see this character just coming out and sort of joking around and actually being robert england at this point the audience didn't know what to make of the picture and it was a it was a very interesting sort of uh, way to see the, um, the audience getting really off balance at this point uh, with Robert Englund coming out as sort of Robert Englund playing Freddy. It was a delicate moment. I felt like this was either where I would lose the audience or um, have them sort of get a, a scary smile on their face and say, oh, I see uh, there's something uh, more going on here than just another sequel to the, to the Freddy movies. I also thought it was a lot of fun to have all the kids in the audience uh, dressed as Freddy's, which I've seen at conventions. And again, the buffoon now changes into the sort of shadowy figure of the real Freddie Beyond, in Heather's eyes casting the shadow over her. And then very abrupt transition to Robert Englund. And the audience gets to see, uh, you know, the man beneath the grease paint, if you will. Bye-bye. You okay? Oh, fine. uh,
1: Everything
0: went great, I thought. We really got you, didn't we?
1: I don't know why you didn't tell me And again,
0: Heather is sort of what the, you know, children screaming for the killer hero behind there uh, is left sort of off balance and wondering uh, exactly what's going on. Robert just saying it was a nice publicity trick. And almost immediately the next sort of step in her uh, slipping towards the um, fuzzy line between reality and movies comes with Sarah Risher calling from New Line Cinema, asking her to come down and have a talk with Bob Shea. Hello? Now, of course, all of this, um, all of these people are the actual um, sort of original producers behind the original nightmare on Elm Street.
1: Well sure when no time like the present. The car will bring you over. now. just take a minute. You'll be glad you did, I bet. Bye.
0: And here we are at the actual headquarters of New Line Cinema. Uh at first, they were kind of leery of us shooting in their actual offices. Uh, the owners of the building didn't even allow us to show the front of the building. That's how nervous they were. Um, but uh, this is New Line Cinema, and so Heather is walking right into the reality of uh, of the place that was uh, built in part, at least, by uh, the original film. Can I
1: help you? I'm here to see Bob Shea. Was Bob expecting you?
0: Hi, Bob. Sarah was very nervous about this scene. She went out and bought a new suit, and... Uh, she was very happy when we all assured her that she looked absolutely stunning, which she does. Now, right in this point, there was a insertion of a little moment with uh, Mike DeLuca, but he asked that to be taken out. He was very nervous about how he looked on screen, but uh, Heather was also introduced to Mike DeLuca, who is uh, the very young sort of head of creative affairs at uh, New Line Cinema under Bob and Sarah. And here's Bob himself. And he's talking, and you can see on the off-screen lines, he's saying, I don't know, he's something of a flake, I believe. <laughs> but we'll see what happens when the script comes in, which I think was Bob's way of of uh, giving me a little jab of a joke. That's how
1: you're doing.
2: <laughs> well, so far, so good. Which, by the way, is why we ask you to come by. But this
0: today. is Bob's office. And uh, this is my little jab back at Bob.
2: Look, Heather, let me cut to the chase. How would uh, you like Bob was
0: absolutely petrified at, at doing this. I mean, he uh, was, a, was a good sport about it, but he was very, very nervous. But uh, interestingly, the sort of nervousness uh, comes across as uh, somebody with a hidden agenda about this, um, because as we suggested at the end of of this particular scene, Bob also has been getting um, threatening calls, and he also has been having nightmares. But uh, here he's trying to act like it's just a movie, even though he's surrounded by all the artifacts of Freddyism, And uh, uh, this closeness is sensed very strongly by Heather herself.
2: There is his inspiration for this thing. Anyhow, he's he's right in the middle of the script,
1: which means he's having nightmares again.
2: Well, he's he's very excited about it.
1: The nightmares?
2: No, sweetie, the script, and you should be too because you're the star.
1: I don't know, Bob. I'm flattered, really.
0: This is extraordinarily oh, yeah. close to the uh, you know the conversation that Heather and I had uh, originally uh, with. When I had the concept of making a film about the people that made the film, of at first being flattered but also just being uh, terrified by the idea of doing something that was so close to her actual life.
2: No, it's not you. That. Look, I have a fan. Heather, you've got plenty of fans. We've been doing marketing research on you. You are rating right up there. Look, we've got Chase working on a prototype for the new glove. It's really what? a... Okay, I know. We we asked him to kind of keep it as a surprise until, until you and I could have this conversation.
1: Bob, how long has Wes been working on this script?
2: I don't know, like a couple months. Why?
1: And since you've been thinking of making it, has anything funny happened? What do you mean? Well, like weird phone calls.
0: These were the very first scenes I, I believe that we shot in, in the film, and uh we they were scheduled for two days, with everybody fearing that Bob wouldn't be able to do his his lines or, or something of that sort. We actually finished up in a day and a half, so we were half a day ahead of by the second day, which is a very nice thing. Bob did a terrific job. There actually after uh, the last look of Heather, there we had a, in this in the movie a, a little shot of the entire staff of New Line Cinema staring at it, everybody had a cup of coffee in their hand. <laughs> but uh, it was one of the things we took out. We thought it was a bit too much of a joke. Now here we begin the uh, sort of next step of the, uh, of the slide towards a combination of uh, film and, and real life reality with Dylan's attack of Freddyism, where he uh, is entering some sort of a fit and begins speaking in, in Freddy's voice. room becomes a very very important set uh, again I liked it a lot because you could see out into this into the backyard and the uh, toy set and also the swimming pool um, it's where the uh, later in the film um, Heather will read the story of Hansel and Gretel to Dylan and ultimately where she'll um, enter down into Freddie's world so this uh, I sort of took it as the um, you know the symbol of uh, of the primal intelligence of the, of the child that's innocent and yet uh, is very very perceptive, and knows that he's he's threatened by th- very very serious things, including something that could slash his uh, his little guardian toy like this.
1: Rex is not going to die. I promise you, sweetie.
0: The child here asks if Rex is going to die, and Heather instinctively says no. And I think when she says that, she she sort of has the look in her face that. Uh, she realizes uh, in, in some vague but very powerful way that she's in for the battle of her life. Now, here's an example of sort of improvisation. Uh, we wanted to show uh, you know, that uh, he was working on a movie set, so we just simply went out into our own movie uh, back lot here, uh, the place where we were all parked to do the scenes and shot the scene. These are all of our own trailers. In many cases, uh, the people in the background are uh, are people from our own production, including Jeff Fenner, who appears four times in the movie. He's now head of my uh, development at West Craven Films. But uh, he appears uh, in the television studio, I believe, in this scene, in the funeral, and uh, someplace else. I don't know. There's many people in the uh, production that uh, sort of walk through.
2: What kind of episode?
1: He was just acting very strangely. Like like somebody was after him. It's scary. It scared me. He was acting like like what? Like Freddie. Heather, has there been another phone call? Jason, why did you tell we me? We have
0: the first call? introduction of the actual claw that will be on Freddie later, in real life. Has been phone call today or not? This is very much the way things are handled on a set or on the, on the uh, location with these large 40 foot trailers, 40 footers they're called, and everybody has their own workshops built right into them and uh, are working on all of these uh, very grisly or interesting things. Um, I like the way that the glove has the little protective tips on the ends of the claws. the the glove has slipped over to the other side of reality and is gone. This shot was shot in slow motion, so we would have a very spooky sort of wavering of the uh, of the rippling of the water on the side of the house. This uh, set, I think, is wonderfully childlike and and evocative. Uh, Cynthia Charette is our production designer, has been on several of my films, including Shocker and, and the recent film I'm working on really did, outdid herself on on the, the design of this production, the warm colors, the sort of spinning, uh, almost strobic uh, child's lamp to the to the right of screen, and the Humpty Dumpty on the left, uh, you know, sort of the figure that all the King's horses and all the King's men couldn't put back together quite the same way as when he started. The
1: opening is big enough. See, I can fit myself. Then quickly Gretel Even the
0: design of this book and uh, the illustrations, finding the right artist to get sort of the Freddy claws out there on the witch and uh, and Freddy colors throughout, so that the child is seen uh, again very accurately uh, the sort of uh, tie-in between reality and uh, and nightmares, and uh, for Heather it's between reality and film. And I like also that it just shows that even in the child there is this ferocity, and uh, that as much as we as uh, good card-carrying liberals like to think that uh, everything can be uh, taken care of by, you know, thought and uh, control, that quite often uh, the child is, is, is drawn towards uh, the reality of violence in, in, uh, as a solution, too, something that's very uncomfortable for us to think about, but quite often is the actual case in life.
1: They were safe and they could sleep.
0: This begins a sequence that I've always wanted to put in a film, and that is the sort of the magical world of what's under the covers for a child. Um, I've thought a lot about what what worlds the child has that are actually his or her own, and one of the places is just under the covers of of, uh, of the child's bed, where quite often you play uh, with toys or go down with a flashlight or have secret meetings and use it as a tent or another world. And um, this film, of course, explores that to the nth degree here with uh, Dylan introducing the uh, concept that uh, his his dinosaur Rex is his guardian that keeps Freddie from coming up from the foot of the bed. To an adult of course this seems like just a child's delusions um, but as, uh, as the child knows uh, you know this is really the portal to the imagination and to the subconscious and the id if you will of humanity and uh, it is very very real. It doesn't matter whether you can crawl down to the end of the covers and pull them up and to see broken toys um, there is also there a portal down into the netherworlds of, uh, of ultimate reality. This is also Miko Hughes' first big talk scene in the film and uh, was proof positive that we had a real actor on our hands. Um, Miko had, uh, had been acting for quite a while. He was in Pet Cemetery as the little child that came back from the dead and killed the grandfather. And he had been in uh, several other films, but this was the first time he had a really large speaking dramatic role. And uh, he just came through like gangbusters here. He, he has a wonderful range of, uh, of um, sort of, impishness and tenderness and uh, fear and and wisdom that is uh, is very very strong.
1: If the birds don't eat him first.
0: Now, one of the things that New Line felt is that we didn't have enough blood and guts in this film, so this is one scene that we sort of leaned in that direction. Um, you know, the design of the film left us with really far fewer victims than were in the normal Nightmare on Elm Street films. I wanted to make a film that was sort of for the next generation, uh, sort of positing that the mythological uh, fan that watched the first nightmare would be 10 years older and no longer in his or her teens, but would be more of the age of, uh, you know, Heather and uh, and her husband here, so. We um, we didn't have quite that sort of body count that uh, most of these sorts of films have, so um, at one point uh, we had a note from Julian Cinema say there's not enough killings. We have to have more killings, <laughs> so uh, this was one scene that we uh, we went for the more gruesome aspect of it. We had a lot of uh, fun working with new sort of digital um, technologies here. We wanted to have the claw coming out of the seat in a way that. Uh, was not quite real in fact it was Bob Shay's idea to have it come out sort of like it was coming out of water. And so we, um, we shot actually um, the actor just sitting over an, an empty black hole and then uh, all of the fabric of the um, of the seat itself was supplied by a computer including all of the rippling and, and so forth. And we went we went uh, back into this optical I would say fifteen or 20 times. it was very very difficult to actually get a program. Or an algorithm that would give us uh, accurate rippling, but uh, eventually got it. I think got it, got it right.
2: Mommy's scared.
0: When I finished this film, I also noticed, uh, I realized something that was very, very personal, and that is that m- several aspects of Dylan's life were very close to my own. When I was five years old, which is uh, about how old we were portraying Dylan, my father died suddenly of a heart attack and I remember very clearly uh, the moment when my mother got the news and uh, it was very, very close to uh, the way that it happens right here. And there are several instances in the film where this uh, parallel became clear to me after the film was made, which is very strange for me and very, uh, very moving. I actually realized the first time when we were laying in the music or recording the music in, uh, in Utah and uh, suddenly realized that in many ways Dylan was myself as a child. We do an interesting technical thing here, um, which has been done before, originally by Hitchcock and very well by Spielberg and Jaws, when when Bruce gets inside of the uh, sort of inlet, and that is to take a shot of an actress or an actor that is uh, zoomed out and framed in, in frame, and then to pull the camera back at the same time you're zooming in so that um, I'm it's the shot remains in the same framing, but uh, the uh, all of the background uh, changes dramatically, so it goes from sharp focus to, uh, to out of focus. It's a way of isolating a character and also just giving a sense of sort of hallucinogenic change and things.
2: Are you sure it's him? Have its effects,
0: you can confirm from that. Now, here Heather is beginning to suspect that things are not quite what they seem to be by insisting on seeing the body. She, these sort of uh, feelings she's having from her intuition and also from the things that her son is saying, have driven her to go sort of into the heart of darkness here, into the morgue itself, and to look at the body. At this point, she's sort of on an excursion of her own investigation. And uh, I wanted just to capture the uh, the sense of uh, these very large, and personal places uh, with somebody crying off in the background that you don't know and will never know. And uh, bodies in the corridor sort of left there as, uh, like cordwood, waiting to be processed. Even uh, the lab attendants, uh, it's very subtle and quick, but you can see one of them is eating lunch and has his thermos on the same table as one of the bodies, and he quickly gets it out of the way.
2: Can I
1: help you? Porter? Chase? Porter? It's, it's
0: back. Here. We had many bodies in here that we couldn't afford to uh, actually order, so K&B, the people who did all the special effects makeup for us, just gave, a, gave us their spare bodies from the movie Gross Anatomy. <laughs> That's where most of these bodies come from. Sorry. Now, it's interesting trying to film somebody who's supposedly dead. Um, you might notice the shots are quite short here. Um, David Newsom, the actor who played uh, Heather's husband, uh, just had one of those bodies where you could see evidence of life everywhere. He, his, his throat pulsated, his eyes twitched, and uh, he had a very strong pulse even in uh, sort of in his uh, in his stomach, so that uh, all of these shots are quite quite brief, but it ended up working uh, quite well, uh, because uh, it was sort of something that uh, Heather didn't want to look at very long, anyway.
1: Please. What is that?
2: It was a bad wreck, ma'am. Uh, the head's going to be all right for the funeral and all, but.
0: Now, I don't know if you want to know about what we use for vomit, but it's a combination of clam chowder and uh, bean soup. and. Uh, Sure. The concept of that is that it'd be something pleasant to have in your mouth, but it turned out to be such a rancid combination of foodstuffs that people were actually getting sick just smelling it.
1: What did that?
2: Well, they said the truck was tore up something awful, so, so you can imagine him not being in, well, exactly top shape. It looks like he
0: That's because captures very well the sort of idea that Heather is asking questions that, Begin to sound insane, and the guy is saying, "Yeah, it looks like he was clawed." So, you know, it was never occurring to him that the victim would have actually been clawed, just that's what it happens to look like.
1: So, uh, if you'll just sign.
2: God is our hope and strength, a very present help in trouble. This
0: shot always reminds me of Jacqueline Kennedy at the uh, at the funeral for JFK. Moved, Here's many carried. of the notables of New Line Cinema, Sarah Risher, Bob Shea, Robert Englund, um, an actress playing his wife. That's Miko's father just behind, um, myself, and Nick Corey from the original Nightmare on Elm Street. This was shot in the um, same cemetery that the original Nightmare on Elm Street funeral scene was shot in, uh, in Los Angeles. here were shot on a special little separate set on the stage, um, the up ankles of course being shot at the cemetery. An interesting case of uh, things being uh, so wonderfully merged by just film uh, editing that you can never, even as a filmmaker, remember that uh, these things were done uh, on a stage. Uh, also a very interesting bloody tear here that appears, if, uh, especially when you see it on film, on the husband uh, that worked very hauntingly to uh, give this sort of sense of combination of gore and, and tragedy.
1: Oh, oh, what oh.
0: John Saxon, of course, from the first film, playing uh, the friend of Heather in this film, uh, both actors, and uh, again, part of the parallels with actual reality. And the minister just saying, basically, I hope you get home safe, not being able to say anything at this point in the face of this kind of madness. There's Nick Corey on the left, and he's standing next to Tuesday Night, who is the star of uh, Nightmare 4. I wanted to ask Johnny Depp to be in the scene, but I uh, ended up uh, just too shy to ask him. I thought uh, that he might refuse me, so I didn't bother asking him. I thought he was such a big star. Later, I actually saw him on an excursion that New Line had uh, on, down in the Caribbean, and uh, we had dinner with him, and he, he told me I should have asked him, so that's why he's not in the scene. Uh, was, um, there was a, a lot of pressure from uh, New Line actually to take the scene out. The film was running longer than they wanted it, and they felt, uh, you know, that there were too many instances of Dylan sort of freaking out or, or acting weird. But uh, we felt very strongly at, at, uh, at my company uh, and myself, I felt very strongly that, um, you know, this this scene really uh, sets off the uh, whole subsequent conversations that you'll see in the park, and. Uh, and later about about Dylan and about the nature of what is real and what's not, and also about the possibility of uh, there being madness in Heather's uh, family that she's passed along to her own son. I also like very much that it showed Nancy in the boiler room at the time that that Freddie steps out, which I think is exactly what's starting to happen here in the uh, course of this story. casually uh, i I think that perhaps wasn't needed but was interesting was that when she said did you see him in the film here he looks over and says uh, what film or what movie and you see the television set is not only black but it's unplugged
1: did you answer the phone dylan where did you hear that but uh, we
0: do show that later as the television being unplugged uh, in the final scenes and uh, of course it remains unplugged throughout the whole film after heather pulls it out at the very beginning saying i don't want you watching that stuff
1: What is that man doing? Trying to get up.
0: I think it's also a terrific scene for Miko again. Dylan! This is another one of those scenes that goes very close to my own heart of uh, you know being left with your mother and asking uh, you know what the sense of all this is or how can there be a God that allows such things to happen. Um, and children ask those kinds of questions that sometimes they challenge the very foundations of our belief systems and they ask them in the most disarmingly simple ways. Um, you know where 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 do people that die go and why is there evil in a world uh, supposedly ruled by a benign God? Well, these are. Questions that have been asked by the wisest minds of our culture, and uh, I think quite often are also asked uh, very simply by children. It's also, I think, a nice uh, sort of shading on this scene that uh, after the mother assures the child that everything is fine, we see the mother reaching for her coffee because she's afraid to be awake, and we see Dylan reaching for his protective doll because he's not quite sure the mother is entirely capable of protecting him. On her own.
1: Can you come with me in my dreams? I think that only happens in the movies. But I'll always, always be right here when you get back. And I'll make sure that nobody gets your toes.
0: He also pulls up his toes just in case his own little protective monster doesn't save him. Now we reflect that idea of the sort of monster by, uh, again, Cynthia Sherratt coming into play here with uh, the tops of the uh, refuse baskets in the in the park having the heads of sort of a gaping mouth. This uh, park was uh, one of the last little small real parks in Los Angeles. It was actually dismantled immediately after we shot this film. and. Uh, they actually were trying to dismantle it before we shot our scene. This rocket ended up in the backyard of Miko uh, himself. His father bought it and uh, carted it out to their home and set it back up in the desert.
2: It is denial. I don't think that's the case here. Look, if you're really worried about Dylan, have it We had a
0: lot of fun playing with sort of little insertions of Freddyism in the scene. There's a, a child on a bicycle with a striped shirt that comes through the background and then right through the foreground. Uh, during this conversation about uh, Heather's problems, he just
2: lost his father. How does a child process a thing like that? I don't know. And there I'm he goes. Not been able to it very well and you're not crazy, by the way.
1: Seeing Freddie in that grave feels pretty crazy, and
2: then jumping
0: in. You didn't jump in.
1: That's my memory. It seemed absolutely real.
0: Seemed, not what The scene uh, culminates in, uh, you know. Um, a near stunt on the part of miko uh, which required him to stand atop this rocket uh, which is thirty feet high uh... three stories high and uh, the 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 sort of plate on the top of it was no bigger than a a, a dinner plate and uh... so all throughout the shoot we were taking them up high places we would take them up on the scissor lifts or the condors that we used for uh... uh... you know getting equipment up high We would uh, take them up on the top of any set we could and along with his father and along with uh, his stand-in so that we, uh, you know, made a constant sort of game of getting used to height so that uh, by the end of it, uh, we could, um, you know, put him up here and have him comfortable being there. He was he's actually quite a brave little kid and very, very athletic. He uh, has the ability to go into a hallway and uh, climb up the walls, pushing his feet on one side and his hands on the other and go right up to the ceiling. <laughs> so he's quite a remarkable young, young man. But uh, the way we did this in order to be safe is that uh, there was a uh, what we call an armature, a steel uh, sort of band running straight up through the back of his pants legs and um, connecting to a steel strap that went around his waist. So he was uh, actually um, very firmly on, on this platform he ends up on. But. Uh, he nonetheless had to be left um, in that position, so we would we were on two sets of cherry pickers uh, talking to him while he was fastened onto this thing, and then at the very end we all had to pull away and leave him, and he had to act like he was falling off and bend over sharply from the waist and do all these things that anybody on such a perch would be terrified of doing, but he did it not only uh, very bravely but very well and in character the whole time. The final fall was done by a young circus performer, uh, a 13-year-old, very small for his age, who. Uh, did the fall into the airbag? The catch was done by the circus performer and a stunt woman, and uh, looks incredibly real. And I think was probably more dangerous than the fall into the airbag in the sense that he had to fall onto a human body rather than into something soft. God,
1: wouldn't take me. I,
0: I, I like a lot the statement at the end. Uh, that uh, God couldn't reach me. Um, you know, it's sort of a postmodern statement of, uh, you know, that all the faith doesn't help you in certain situations. Uh, it's kind of a chilling statement. and Whether it's true or not, I think uh, from time to time we all sort of feel that. I like also this idea of Heather going out in front of her white picket fence house and uh, just not feeling quite as safe as she did before. and um, it's always been a theme in my films of, you know, the sort of strangeness inserting itself into the sort of middle-class uh, safety of of American life. You we have the planting of the, uh, strange and unexplained letters that only later will, um, make sense. Now, for Robert Englund's house, we, we, I decided on something quite baronial. We went to uh, Pasadena and shot him in the mansion of a, um, uh, Cardiologist who has done very well, and uh, we sort of, I sort of played him as uh, my fantasy of what uh, Robert Englund must live like. He actually lives in a beach house in uh, Hermosa Beach and is uh, very informal and uh, doesn't live like this at all. But uh, to me, this was like a, sort of a fun way of depicting Robert Englund as uh, somebody who paints and paints very sort of florid and nice, uh, you know, landscapes. And uh, we we went out and bought a lot of very cheap paintings that were all very, very sort of nice and peaceful and calm and so that they would contrast with the uh, painting that he was doing at the moment, uh, inspired by his nightmares.
1: Yeah. How did you know?
0: The actual what painting was painted by Linda Pretty Newman, human, our yes. onset painter, who uh, you know, did all the sort of coloration of the sets, and uh, especially in the later Freddy's um, underworld, and um, uh, is a gifted artist uh, on her own right. Who knows? so weird.
2: I asked him how far he was at the funeral. What did he say? Oh, yeah. As far as Dylan. Trying to reach God, whatever
0: that means. In this scene I, weird, huh? with Heather in her backyard, they use the um, just the sound of crows crossing overhead. I, uh, I've been doing that since my first films of using birds as sort of harbingers of what's coming, uh, which I think is a very ancient uh, sound that we're subconsciously uh, attuned to, of uh, animals in the world, uh, sort of warning of what's coming.
2: Today's no good. There's um, there's something I have to finish.
0: Uh, Tomorrow maybe, huh? If you look carefully in the window here, you can see a white card and part of the crew. Sure. Here we have the revelation of the painting itself. I wanted something that was very, very surreal and sort of very slashy in its composition. And then later in the editing room, we had the idea of dissolving right over it into Heather's bedroom, which worked, uh, worked beautifully. Now, in this scene, you can see that lamps and the bed itself is actually moving. If you look carefully, I wanted, wanted it to be very subtle. But uh, everything in the room was on gimbals or levers and was moving very subtly to give an idea of a world that was coming um, sort of unglued at the seams. And we start the shot very low, so you can see under the bed, so you can see there's nothing down there. Um, because later we'll have things coming out of the bed. It actually involved a uh, special effects technician being inside the the mattress in a most excruciatingly uncomfortable way, um, manipulating the claws that came up. He then had to be pulled by other special effects people by his feet uh, because he wasn't able to obviously move in such a cramped uh, and confined space so that uh, the claws could travel uh, across the bed. These were special claws that were razor sharp. and. Uh, had to be in order to cut the sheet uh, this way. So uh, obviously everything here had to be done incredibly precisely. favorite types of montages where you build a scene that seems to be in and of itself to scare uh the threatening of the glove and then she wakes up and and oh it's only a nightmare and then just as you think it's sort of over you are drawn into a second uh frightening moment uh, which is you know with something even more profoundly unsettling and and frightening so that you no longer have a sense of what is reality and what is a dream which is Sort of how I feel about life itself.
1: <laughs> Dylan, Dylan.
0: I think Miko really turns in a terrific performance here, as does Heather. Um, Miko, I think since uh, Pet Cemetery has had this sort of strange child uh, technique, really down uh, that you don't know whether he's innocent or or, or hideous and. Uh, don't know whether he's just sleepwalking or has a, a bundle of yeah. knives behind his back as he does here. When we shot this sequence, all of the adults on the set were horrified that the child was walking around with this on his hands. And of course, Miko and his standing were fascinated by it. We were running around, <laughs> you know, sweeping at everybody so that we had to sort of watch them very carefully. So now we're coming out of a nightmare within a nightmare and uh, come downstairs to um, an early morning scene. But th- by this time, the audience is thoroughly uh, disoriented, not knowing uh, exactly what's going on. And uh, we come down into uh, a, a nightmare that actually takes place in waking life, and that is um, Dylan having found all of these pieces of paper with individual letters on them and strangely composed them into the message that was intended, clutching onto his protective toy this is exactly the same position he was standing in when he said, someone's coming. And then we have the reprise of the uh, notorious tongue out of the telephone from Nightmare on Elm Street 1. Yes. <laughs> I touched him. Dylan, throwing up the foam like this involved us putting a sort of bicarbonate of soda in his mouth and then giving him a sweet of water just before we went on the tape. Uh, which he hated, but uh, willingly did about six takes. of. And then it was an even later inspiration to have the phone coming out of the telephone as well. It's a good example of the sort of collaboration that goes on in making of a movie, uh, where everybody is funneling in ideas and sort of cross-fertilizing uh, themes and ideas from the original script.
2: there a trigger event? Trauma.
0: Now here we have the introduction of uh, Dr. Hefner, which was intentionally uh, sort of a backhanded tribute to the head of the MPAA until just this year, um, Dr. Richard Hefner, who uh, was the bane of my life for much of my film career, uh, censoring virtually every film I made and causing me to make cuts that I didn't want to make. So uh, he ends up uh, having his namesake in this film, who is the doctor who thinks that Heather and what she does is, is pretty screwed up and uh, causing the, uh, the problems with this child.
2: Anything more: This is played
0: by how? actress friend Bennett, who is a very imposing woman, um, does a lot of Shakespeare and uh, stands almost six feet high, so she's a real powerful, um, imposing um, authority figure and exactly what I wanted. Now well, we have an idea of Heather backing up uh, her son um, so that they become sort of allies here clearly for the first time where she says, no, uh, there was no other uh, thing that my son said, which uh, keeps her son from uh, Further scrutiny and uh, allows her to uh, sort of slip into an alliance with him where they both now share the same reality.
2: Point to childhood schizophrenia. Dylan, can you hear me?
1: Dylan, you have to fight it. Whatever it is that's after you, and you gotta come back to me. You can't make it alone. Do you hear? If you can hear me, then you can tell me what you need to feel safe. Rex? Is that what you want?
0: You know, watching this film uh, silent as we are now for these comments, uh, one of the things you don't hear, um, but uh, I still am constantly aware of, is the music, uh, incredible music of J. Peter Robinson, who... uh, you know, came onto this film from having worked with me on uh, Nightmare Cafe and, and uh, did such a stunning job of evoking the sort of uh, combination of horror and tenderness uh, in scenes uh, between the mother and child and uh, between these two and Freddy and uh, all of his forces. Have to
1: come out from where you are so that they'll let you come home to Rex
0: and to me. Time for your medicine, cowboy. Incidentally, this is Lynn Shea, who appears in many, many New Line movies. This is the sister of Bob Shea, and also played the school teacher in Nightmare on Elm Street 1, who uh, was in the classroom when Heather saw her vision of Tina in the doorway in the body bag. It's a very sweet, sweet woman, Well, I've used in other films, too. Uh, one of my Twilight Zone, she had a starring role also. Good,
2: good, Atta boy. Come on, now lie down and take a little minute. You should get some rest, too. He's going to be fine. We're going to do some tests, and then you can come back later. Can you get that other side, please?
1: I I grabbed his things. These are his favorite pajamas here. Um, Honey, I've got to go. I love you, Dylan. Remember what I said.
2: We'll take care of it.
0: Now again, this is an important moment where the child represents the side of uh, of our own minds that refuses really to uh, to be clouded. You know, it's it's pre-mother's little helpers. It's uh, it does not uh, like to take anything that would cloud its vision, and will only feign sleep, but really be quite wide awake. Now, the sequence I had some fun with. Uh, we have actually two doctors coming by just. Uh, listing off just horrible diseases that human beings are prone to. Uh, and after they walk out, we, uh, we have Heather almost backing up into the uh, car of one of our crew members who uh, watched in horror every time this was done. We did this three takes. And the uh, car was driven by my stunt coordinator, Tony Caesar, who actually does the line here. But uh, there was really no control except for Heather stopping at the right moment. And uh, she did it each time uh, just perfectly. But she just couldn't get that seat belt to come down. Now, here we slip into, uh, after the earthquakes actually happened in Los Angeles, we sent a second unit crew out with a a stand-in for Heather and uh, her car and drove them by. This is the uh, freeway overpass that collapsed. And uh, we also have uh, Northridge University and uh, the parking structure there, which is this shot. And uh, we also have, I believe, the Kaiser Permanente uh, Medical Building in Santa Monica, that had to be uh, torn down immediately after the shot was made because it was so badly damaged. And plot wise, we have Heather calling Robert uh, one of the people that uh, she could rely on and finding that he is no longer in town, that he's basically just gotten out. These shots were shot up by the large burn area of the Malibu fires. And again, we just found ourselves. Uh, I always read about Max Sennett uh, you know, sending crews out to uh, fires and and natural disasters to film uh, because they they would provide sets that you could never afford to build. And certainly, uh, that transition just shows the sort of stark landscape that uh, you know is part of the Los Angeles scene, especially in the last five years. And uh, we come to quote my house. We used a, a different house actually. We used one out in Malibu, and a little bit, uh, you know blew up the image of the director. I wanted to play myself as sort of a um, half of a confidant and half of a person that was determined to make his own film, no matter what it might cost Heather. I thought that was kind of a a fun twist to put on myself and uh, maybe more accurate than I'm comfortable admitting, Um, but this was sort of my acting debut and I I was convinced that nobody would ever be able to understand me so very gratified to find out that uh, despite my mumbling people could more or less make out what I was saying. The scene ended up being directed more or less by uh, Jeff Fenner, the head of d- my development again, and uh, and Ann Maddalena, my producer, who would watch the takes and then come over and say, well, you you look like you're smiling on this one. You're supposed to be uh, very serious. Or couldn't understand you at all on that take. Go back and do it again. I basically wanted to just say, okay, fine, that's it. Let's move on because I was so uncomfortable. So then, well, wow, it's held there are a lot of this. things from my own house, the uh, art department under Cynthia's... Uh, um, orders went to my house and sort of plundered virtually everything I could find that had to do with myself or my movies so um, there are great things in this a great many things in this house that are uh, you know mementos that I have for my own films right. the silver statue that's on the table in front of us was uh, presented to me uh, at Sitges uh, film festival uh, and uh, I believe it was uh, sculpted by uh, Morricone's brother who is a sculptor and uh, many other things in the house uh, the picture on the background is by a friend of mine, Carol Westwood, who's a photographer. Later, when we go into my studio, there's a, a great amount of things in there that are out of my own office.
1: What well, if Pretty is loose in your script? Where's he gonna go? Another age?
0: Another form? No, that's not what the dreams have him doing, though. No. After Why doing this scene, you do- you know, I was uh, much more in awe of directors who star in their own films. Uh, I think it's extraordinarily difficult to to act and and plus direct or watch the other performances in in a way that's meaningful. Um, One of the things you do, perhaps the principal thing you do as a director is just watch, and watch very accurately so that you can say on the subsequent takes, um, this is what I saw and this is what I think would be better to do. But when you're acting, I find, uh, especially if you're just beginning acting, you uh, You're much more aware of yourself and and not so aware of the other things so that uh, uh, that it's a real danger. If I didn't have the help of uh, my associates, I think uh, this scene probably would have been a disaster.
1: That was Nancy, Wes. It's not me.
0: Yeah, but it was you that gave Nancy her strength. This scene also, of course, was very important in a plot sort of way. uh, A friend of mine, um, Rob Cohen, the the producer-director, once said that there's always a point in a film where you have Johnny explainer and uh, that is somebody who sort of lays out the basis of the uh, of the conceit or the idea behind the uh, presentation of reality in this case that uh, that there is a Freddie outside of the films that uh, has has and is eternal. Now, just to take a moment now, coming to my studio, you see uh, there's a picture of Diamante Galas there on the wall, who is someone I admire a great deal, and also a painting by um, American painter J- uh, Charles Ford of uh, something called. Uh, the name of the theater, but it actually features Nightmare on Elm Street on the marquee. I saw that in a gallery in New York and bought it. Uh, behind us here in the uh, studio you see pictures from the original Nightmare on Elm Street directly behind of Heather and um, all of her co-actors and Robert Englund with a Walkman uh, on his head and uh, many other things from my earlier films. But anyway, going back to that that scene just briefly uh, you know it's very important that uh there I lay out the concept that uh, what i what I imagine is solving the problem of making this film, and that is uh having had six sequels and having killed Freddy off very thoroughly in the films uh, when I originally talked to Bob Shea about doing the film i I said, I can only do it if I can find a way to bring him back that isn't uh, isn't risible isn't just stupid, you know and Bob uh, and Sarah agreed with me. So uh, it was only at the moment that I thought of jumping completely out of the sort of narrative of the sequels and going into the making of the films and the people that made them and how the making of the films influenced us all, but also how Freddie is about something that's much older than any particular series of films and much more real, that uh, it wasn't until that time the film really sort of clicked into place for me. And so uh, that scene where I tell Heather, the that basic concept, if you will, is uh, is very important for the film. Now, this ensuing scene where Heather is trying to find the medical basis and psychological basis for Dylan's problems, um, I think is their last attempt to, to sort of explain it by Western science. And uh, of course, that's interrupted by not only the natural phenomenon of earthquakes, but also her finding out that the two special effects guys who have disappeared. Um, were, were slashed to death by the very glove that her husband created. And this uh, sort of is the point where all hell starts to break loose. Glove
2: was missing and police are I was
0: instantly very upset to find that uh, the shot that we had done uh, prior to my seeing Jurassic Park was was stolen by Spielberg but to show the beginning of the coming of the, uh, of the dinosaurs. Now, this, this scene is interesting because it's, it's sort of the emergence of Freddy into real life and is uh, parallel with the earlier films, um, Nightmare on Elm Street 1, specifically of uh, Heather being burned in the, during the classroom nightmare when she goes down into Freddy's boiler room. She wakes herself up by uh, putting her hand against this hot steam pipe and wakes up in, in the classroom and looks at her arm and there's a, a burn mark on it. And uh, that's when she realizes that what's happening in dreams can affect her uh, physically. Now at this moment, she discovers that the coffee pot that she had on her bedside to keep her awake was, has been spirited away and smashed in the closet. So the source of her uh, ability to stay awake has been removed, at least uh, symbolically, and the next instant we know, Freddy strikes. Miss me. This scene is a good example of the, of the sort of art of Patrick Lussier, who is our editor. Um, a discovery, I, I, I like to think, of, of uh, mine. He worked for us as one of two editors on Nightmare Café, a, a very short uh, television series we did in Canada. And I liked his work so much, we kept in touch, and uh, I told him at that time that, uh, that my next feature I would like him to cut. So over the months, and uh, almost I think a year from the time of the, that project to this, uh, we kept in touch. and. I uh, helped in his getting him down into the United States, and uh, he became the editor of this new line. At first, was very worried about that. He had never cut a feature before, but uh, he is extraordinarily gifted and uh, and very facile on the new technology of editing, which is on machines such as the Lightworks, which this film was cut on. So that uh, shortly after you shoot a film, you can be looking at a, a, what appears to be a finished cut. It would be typical on this shoot to be shoot a major sequence on the day after uh, or the day, day and a half after to have a complete cut including sound effects and music that you could look at and see exactly what you had. And also was very inspiring for actors and uh, for crew.
1: I had this really terrible dream about Dylan. I had to come and see him. You uh, must think I'm crazy. No, I don't. Is he all right?
0: No, this is sort of the beginning of the transformation of uh, Tracy Mittendorf's uh, character of uh, the babysitter, where you realize that she's been having bad nightmares, too, and it's, she's swinging over into the side of those who are being victimized by Freddie. Of course, for Heather, it's a discovery that uh, she has truly been wounded by this encounter with Freddie. And uh, for the doctor, of course, it's a sign that this young mother is completely unstable and unworthy of uh, having responsibility of the child, which, of course, for both Heather and for Dylan would be their worst nightmare.
1: I need to see Dylan. In
0: the background, you see uh, a trio of nurses. One of them, you'll uh, we'll see later, there is a nurse. Uh, who is was actually my daughter, Jessica, who uh, has a small role in this film, and has done a lot of ca- cameos in my, in my films. She's now uh, not in the business and is teaching uh, junior high and high school.
1: They are. It happened in tonight's earthquake. It happened just 15 minutes ago.
0: I think in this scene, Heather represents me and the doctor represents Hefner of the MPA, <laughs> basically saying, you know, you are screwing up our kids by uh, being involved in these sorts of things. And, uh, you know, uh, Heather and myself feeling like we're dealing with things that kids see and, and perceive very strongly and, uh, and that we ourselves have experienced. And uh, if you don't do art about it, uh, you, you, in a sense, will be more mad than ever because you won't be acknowledging some of the most important primal truths.
1: the man from your films, Freddy Krueger, with the claws. Is that who he's afraid of?
2: You have let your child see your films, haven't you?
0: This to me is, is sort kid. of epitomizes the argument that, uh, you know, by showing kids scary films you cause them to do scary things. Um, when all around us in the world, uh, and everywhere you want to look, and certainly any front page of any day's newspaper, you'll see real-life horror stories on a scale that uh, dwarf absolutely anything that could be in a horror film. You can take Bosnia or Chechnya or, or um, any of a hundred things that happen uh, in the United States on any given day. and. Uh, that a child knows is real, and uh, that will put anything that we have in a horror film to shame. I always liken it to uh, the ugly person smashing the mirror. Um, it's not the mirror that's ugly, it's uh, you know what is reflected Part of the silly consistency of my making films is it's always necessary to show some point when the person falls asleep, uh, if we're going into a nightmare sequence, as this turns out to be, that one brief little nod of the head is all it takes for Heather to slip into the uh, nightmarish world of what's going on uh, in her perceptions of her child, and and in sort of Freddy's uh, molestation, if you will, of this child. Now, this particular moment of disgust uh, was uh, attained by having a sort of a a metal tube that ran up the side of Dylan's head and uh, swerved around into his mouth in in such a way that you couldn't see it from the side, and then was pumped out by, um, of of all things, a sort of a racing 10-speed bicycle pump. And we had to do this scene several times. The first time, it didn't really work, but it it did succeed in sort of covering Heather in this horrible glop of mixed soups. And we also released in this scene um, Something like 3,000 flies, um, none of which showed up on film, for whatever reasons. But filled the room and was all over the crew and, and cast. And uh, when we had to reload, uh, the sort of pump, uh, Heather was left alone in the room, sitting covered in this sort of fake vomit and flies. Um, and I went in and had coffee with her at a certain point, and uh, you know she just was good-naturedly saying, "I'll just wait until you're ready to shoot, and we'll shoot." But after the entire scene was over, she made a point of coming up to me and giving me a huge hug, which smeared me with the stuff, too.
2: We took him. You looked so exhausted. Frankly, we didn't want to wake you. Besides, the young woman Julie is with I forgot to him. mention
0: also the, uh, the streak of silver hair in Heather, Heather's uh, hair, of course, is the same thing that happened to her in nightmare one, too. So we did a great deal of sort of cross-pollinization uh, between the two films of Heather being pulled back to the situation of uh the first nightmare when she was the original actress that uh, did battle with freddie this again is, is my daughter's little cameo here uh, and there's also an interesting continuity thing here that uh, takes place if you look at uh, the position of my daughter's hands uh in this encounter with the doctor at uh in this angle
1: uh he seems to be suffering from acute sleep deprivation i don't think she ever lets him
0: her hand is down, and there it's up.
1: Where is he? Heather! I've uh, got someone here who wants to see you.
0: Dylan. Dylan! This is a great look on the part of Dylan. He looks 40 years old. I just think that he looks like a, a, a man with all the cares of the world on his shoulders, um, not knowing exactly what he's going to do. And... Uh, Asking his mother desperately to to go get his sort of uh, protector, and when she fails, uh, he ultimately is on his own and must uh, make the journey back to the house himself.
2: I'm sure you understand.
0: So we're sort of working off of dual heroes here. One is Heather, and one is the child. Um, the child, in in some ways, being even more important because he is, uh, you know, the purveyor of of the innocent viewpoint, and. Uh, Shortly after this, Heather is stopped by the doctor and the security of the hospital, and and uh, circumvented from uh, being allowed to go back and get the doll for for Dylan, and she's carted off sort of into a separate room where she's examined for being perhaps mentally incompetent. And the child is uh, on the time clock, if you will, of uh, desperately trying to stay awake uh, one, one or more, one or two more minutes, but uh, you know, knowing that he can't uh, remain awake much longer.
1: Julie, don't let him out of your sight.
2: What's going on here? Your hair is turning gray. Julie,
1: keep him awake. Understand?
0: Now, here, Heather is exactly, you know, right after the moment that her hair is touched and, and we're all reminded of Nightmare One, she says almost exactly the same line she says in the first picture, of whatever you do, don't fall asleep. What
2: are you doing? Do you
1: mind? What the hell is this? Just a quick word, Miss Langenkamp.
2: For Dylan's sake. Well,
1: we've had an exciting day, haven't we, Miss (gasps) Langenkamp? One,
2: two, three.
1: three. My daughter is
0: now teaching among other things courses in film to students in Brooklyn and uh, she's become quite the hero to her classes and uh, they call her the needle nurse as we called her and uh, she plays this sort of smug role of somebody who uh, takes part in the deception of a child in order to get him to sleep I think of, you know, of course in the largest sense it's, uh, this sort of impulse on the part of the controlling society to have uh, all of us anesthetized has always been sort of a key theme of my films that uh, you know the central necessity to remaining Free and independent, or in control of your own life, is to remain awake in a conscious sense. And, uh, you know, to know the true information and to uh, see through the lies. Hey, you can't do that. This is also uh, Tracy Mittendorf's uh, sort of turning point, when she punches the uh, the head nurse. Uh, everybody in the theater's cheers, and uh, everybody knows that she's on the side of good and not evil. And I will. Of course, her fate is sealed here at this one little instant that Dylan falls asleep. Uh, he's ma- managed to stay awake the whole time on his own, but uh, through this deception, he's drugged and uh, for a moment, just a moment loses consciousness, and that's all it takes to uh, seal the fate of, uh, of Julie. Meanwhile, um, you know, it's counterpointed by this scene of Heather being grilled by the doctor and security, uh, who have all obviously concluded that she's quite mad.
1: Been suffering from any delusional events, Miss Langenka? This man from your films, Freddy Krueger, have you been seeing him? No.
0: Again, a oh, reference back a nightmare no, to Nightmare One where the cuts away. on Heather's arm start bleeding in her bedroom uh, just before she goes into her final fight into the boiler room um, in search of Freddy.
2: Drugs and treatments, Miss Langekin. We could put Dylan in foster care for a short while. Just long enough to run some tests on you. Just keep your eyes open, do that for me, okay?
0: Now we're coming into one of the key sequences in the film, uh, certainly uh, one of the most violent and uh, one of the most strongly uh, referential back to the original nightmare, where you have um, Freddie making an appearance um, in a room of killing a young woman in this case uh, Tracy mittendorf's character of uh, Julie in the original film the uh, character of Tina and uh, sort of a reversal of gravity where he drags her up a wall and across the ceiling and uh, involved us uh, purchasing a um, framework of a revolving room that we found on the back lot of, I believe, Universal and then constructing our set around it. So, while uh, Heather is doing her final struggle to get free of the sort of minions of uh, of the good doctor, um, we have the beginning of uh, this very, very uh, frightening assault on Julie and and murder of Julie. Uh, So, it was quite an elaborate rig. The uh, entire room was able to be rotated, um, and it was a combination of Julie uh, or Tracy, actually the actress, uh, having to sort of be in this room as it was rotating. All the cameras, of course, were affixed to the end of the room in such a way that they remained stable. The technicians, the cameraman uh, Mark Irwin, our our DP, and and the person on the second camera had to be sort of rearranging their footing at each step of the way as the room rotated. They had to sort of just sort of scramble around and try to keep their eyes to the eyepieces, and uh, everybody sort of just acted as as best they could while this uh, room rotated. All the shots of uh, of Dylan um, that are in the room as it rotates, of course, had to be done with a stunt double who was strapped to the table in such a way that he could rem- remain pretty much immobile. This shot, for instance. Uh End up with a very sort of chilling reversal of, uh, of gravity that uh, is again one of those primal uh, certitudes that can be um, revoked at times from time to time by nature and is always very frightening. Um, that, along with the Earth is always solid, uh, being revoked by earthquakes. There's a moment here where Heather uh, elbows the nurse in the gut and uh, sends her stumbling away, which is interesting to note only because it was completely unplanned and the actress playing the nurse was unprepared for actually being elbowed in the stomach. So it's all completely real. I mean Heather apologized profusely afterwards, but uh, she was so much into her role that she simply uh, let her have it.
1: He's you idiot he's fully capable of walking out of this hospital Oh shit.
0: now we're moving towards one of the uh, big set pieces of the film which is the chase across the freeway in Los Angeles I, for years and years I'd always felt while driving that uh, one of the most frightening things you could ever put in a film would be a sequence a fight sequence or a flight sequence of some sort that was in the middle of a freeway at night because everybody travels at such great speeds in Los Angeles and I can't think of a place where you'd be more unprotected than being afoot on a freeway uh, in the middle of the night so of course uh, my perverse mind thought this would be a wonderful uh, Sort of impediment to Dylan reaching his home and the protection of uh, Rex if he had to cross the freeway. So uh, we devised this scene, which was, of course, very carefully storyboarded and, uh, and attained through a, a multitude of technical trickery, but uh, also a great deal of, um, of bravery on the part of Dylan. We used Dylan walking through cameras um, compacted by telescopic lenses. Um, we used uh, a digital insertion of Dylan into the scenes by putting him onto a special rear projection set. We used uh, a little person, uh, or several little persons, uh, walking across really dense traffic, all very carefully choreographed, of course, and uh, and uh, various other things. Uh, this is Heather right here, getting very, very close to that truck. Heather here also with cars going by at uh, you know, 50, 60 miles an hour behind her. A shot of him, of Dylan flying over the truck, of course, is done on a stage. As this one where the school bus goes by. So it was a very, very elaborate construction of various uh, technologies. This tanker truck uh, actually drove over the stunt woman. It was devised in a way that its rear wheels were able to be turned in such a way that it could be steered. And uh, the shot of Heather was done on stage. This flying shot was done in the parking lot uh, in, almost in post production uh, to tie the, the two in. There were just a, a tremendous amount of different technologies, um, most of them working through uh, computers. And then people doing real stunts including the stunt woman taking the hit off the car uh, you know and falling to the pavement which was absolutely real now going back to Jeff Benner's fourth appearance it is the seventh Freddy from the left we every, we dragged everybody into uh, getting into these masks uh, so it was all crew members and extras and uh, drivers and everybody else we could we could get to uh, you know be one of the Freddie's here the freeway sequence was absolutely exhausting. The temperatures were very, very low. We were using water a great deal, and it always felt very dangerous. We were all extremely glad to get off of it when it was over and uh, not have anybody hurt whatsoever on it. Dylan! Now we're reaching the point in the film where Heather is, is very close to being dragged over into the reality of the first nightmare. Um, the uh, appearance of John Saxon and his friends slides very eerily into his character as um, her father in Nightmare One, as the police lieutenant. The uh, Dylan with the slash marks on his on his uh, pajamas tell her that uh, what was happening was real, and uh, very shortly she will be sliding into very much of a representation of herself as Nancy rather than herself as Heather Langenkamp. So it's the final blurring of the reality between what is acted and what is lived here john is actually saying you know lines that uh, are from the original nightmare on elm street uh, when heather was calling her father who was across the street uh, investigating the death of johnny depp and she says i know who did it and now it was freddy Krueger. and the father says yeah sure right here john saxon says exactly the same thing they go outside for this scene uh, away from the child leaving the child alone his head turns towards the bedroom he knows exactly what's happening This scene also is evocative of the first film, with Freddy coming out of the bed of Nancy at the very end of the film.
2: What the hell is going on, Nancy? Why are you calling me Nancy, John? And
0: here's the transition. John Saxon, the actor, asking Heather what's going on. And the next time she turns around, it's her father, Lieutenant Thompson, who's right back in the original film.
2: Before you make yourself in that kid nuts, Robert,
1: Robert England. You know the guy who plays Freddy.
0: Freddy who?
1: Freddy Krueger.
0: Nancy. And this is the point. And even Freddy waits for it, where Heather says, "I love you too, Daddy," which is her accepting of the role of Nancy rather than um, staying in her own persona, if you will, as the actress. Don't forget. From that that. point on, she is very much in the world of Nightmare on Elm Street. One.
1: I love you too, Daddy.
0: That's my foot, incidentally. And this shot is my uh, tribute to Nosferatu, uh, uh, one of the famous early classics of horror. Nancy. And suddenly John Saxon is no longer in his silver car, but he's in the old car of the uh, police lieutenant, pulls off with the light uh, light swinging. And we actually shot this on the original street of Nightmare and Elm Street, uh, which is right in, right in Hollywood, off of Sunset Boulevard. Heather turns around, or Nancy turns around, and finds herself in front of the original house. i suppose if i had had my way i would have had the rest of the picture in a way play out in the original house if we had had that set early on in the project sarah told me that they had all the sets of the interiors of the house and i thought we would go and uh, have her actually run into the original nightmare house but it turned out to be too expensive and i think they were not as available as sarah thought and initially i thought that was kind of a loss and we had to go back to the original house but looking back at it i feel like if you had run into a completely strange house with all of the sort of resonance that has taken place throughout the film, Heather grabbing, you know, a knife from the same rack that Dylan had made his little clawed hand, the same television set playing the film again, I think we would have lost a great deal. So again, I think it was one of those things where budget uh, came in and imposed uh, a restriction that turned out to be a blessing. And here we see John Saxon saying the same lines uh, as the character that uh, he said just moments before in the house uh, before Heather had to assume the role of Nancy. She finds herself in the original pajamas, And interestingly enough, I had kept, I don't know why, but I kept a big box in my garage for 10 years of all the original wardrobes. So we had the original pajamas, we had the original um, jacket of John Saxon. We actually had many of the the same pieces of wardrobe that we were able to use again. It's also an interesting way to see who had put on how many pounds. (laughs) Now we move into the sort of, uh, you know, reiteration of the theme of Hansel and Gretel with Dylan leaving his trail of breadcrumbs, in this case, the sleeping pills that the hospital gave him that he refused to take. That leads Heather to the final uh, portal of Freddie's world. Rex the uh, up to this point the final protector of Dylan eviscerated and uh, essentially dead on the floor and heather realizes that at this point Dylan is completely unprotected and uh, only she stands between Dylan and Freddie there was an interesting sort of sidelight to this film was the uh, tension of between censorship and uh non censorship in, in that we had essentially a child in jeopardy and during sort of these liberal times in hollywood uh, that was considered a no-no of course for me um the child as representing an sense was perfect and uh so there was always the the fear that uh, when the film was over uh, the scenes like the uh freeway scenes and scenes of dylan wearing claws and everything else would uh, get us an an x or an nc-17 and, and uh, cause all sorts of uh, censorship problem, which has happened to be a great deal in the making of my films and is always just absolutely agonizing. Ironically, in this film, um, which was one of the last films that uh, Dr. Hefner of the MPAA uh, saw before he retired, uh, we were given absolutely a clean R, no cuts required whatsoever, which astonished me and was uh, just one of those things that seemed to be part of the blessing of making this film um, and that with all of the extraordinary seemingly dangerous and difficult things that we attempted we somehow even through a major earthquake in Los Angeles managed to pull it all off this scene uh, was a thirty-foot section of a uh, of tunnel that was dressed in many different ways first with sheets then with sort of steel and bolted uh, iron and then with the uh, stone and, and water that Heather had to slide down over and over and over again and uh, very very bravely uh, coming out with nicks and bruises from bashing against uh, bolts and so forth and never complaining once. And then falling into this gigantic um, matte painting and the computer uh, manipulated image of her falling down, down into hell that I can see kind of late in the, in the editing process as necessary to show the sort of dimension that she was falling into. I believe there were around eight or 10 layers of that, uh, eight or 10 separate very complicated passes in the part of the computer. The pterodactyle flopping by was uh, Actually we bought it, uh, it's a program that was used in a, uh, a film about uh, prehistoric animals. Um, the flames and the um, so forth were set on, shot on a separate little stage. The matte painting itself was an element, uh, there was an element of fog and mist, all of which uh, we, I hoped would show sort of uh, how vast an area that this was that we were moving into now. And then we come into sort of the Piazza de résistance of, uh, of Cynthia Sheret uh, with this remarkable set of uh, of Freddie's world, which was a, a nearly a hundred feet long and uh, full of, I told her I wanted a set that was full of water and uh, and vines and very very organic, and that the farther you moved into it, the farther you went into sort of human history and prehistory. So we started with the sort of Babylonian uh, look and uh, went back into uh, areas more and more water and uh, more and more sort of uh, ancient uh, architectural looks. There's also um, you know, the names of rivers from um, Dante's Inferno, and the thing is redolent with all sorts of uh, symbology from various uh, mythologies of Western and and Eastern civilization. And it brings us all back to the script, which, you know, is one of the central themes of this film, that, uh, you know, the scripts that we write somehow are not uh, detached and are not just artifacts of a... Of a film industry, but they are part of uh, sort of a, an echo from our, from the writers in this case myself, uh, deepest subconscious, and uh, are part of uh, something that is ultimately very, very real. And in some ways, not only uh, records what what happens in our lives, but in some ways determines or expresses it in a way that is controlling and uh, evokes events.
1: Everything she had experienced and thought was bound within these pages. There was no movie. There was only her
0: life. We originally had lots of shots of her searching for Dylan, with Dylan running around, and we saw Dylan moving throughout the area. And ultimately, we took them out, feeling like uh, we didn't want to show Dylan at all until the moment he found her. And that's moments, of course, before the spinal confrontation between the real Freddie and, uh, and Heather. Here, one of the frightening images we had um, uh, something like 20 moray eels and, and uh, a, a, a sort of a bevy of uh, eel handlers trying to keep these things under control and uh, ultimately had to have Heather picking, picking one up. Or the rubber eel that he threw, just for those of you that are animal lovers. Fuck you. This is one of the few things that we uh, went back and shot extra on. We uh, we wanted to have this final fight really be a life and death struggle, and so we went back and. Uh, enhanced it with the further struggle. The one in the small room with the uh, eels was additional shooting. We also shot additional shots here and then in a later moment, which I'll tell you about when it comes up. This was another moment when we were afraid that we would be censored with the child actually stabbing uh, Freddie, but uh, fortunately, we we're allowed to, to keep it in. I think it's important that uh, the child, sort of in his movement into young manhood, if you will, is, uh, has to pick up a weapon and strike. This particular moment right here was one of the first times that we had uh, Miko Hughes in the presence of Robert Englund made up. And uh, he walked on the set and saw the actor turn around and ran into his parents' arms crying. So we had to spend about half an hour just having him talk to Robert Englund and get used to the idea of uh, this. The set was so frightening to to all of us uh, and certainly to this child that uh, we spent a lot of time just getting him used to the um, aspect of uh, what it looked like. and with all the water running and the smoke, steam running and everything else. There was a, it was a tremendously live set. We had uh, you know, an enormous amount of propane working for the fires. We had live steam, we had smoke, we had water pouring off the top, and uh, the whole thing running was like running a factory at a at, at, uh, high pitch. Part of the uh, tribute to to Marco, when our cinematographer, would be that this set was much, despite the fact that it was 100 feet long, was still much smaller than it appears to be. Uh, um, the uh, the way he captured the uh, uh, the huge dimensionality of it and the use of fire and lighting was, uh, I think, really extraordinary. Uh, Mark has the ability to move very very fast and at the same time uh, to capture things in, in really uh, magnificent detail and nuance. Uh, in color and tonality and and use of of light and fire and and other things like that. He uh, shot all the original uh, Cronenberg films up through, I believe, uh, The Fly and uh, is uh, another talent that came to us by way of Canada. Here again, we have an iteration, a reiteration of uh, the original film, Nancy uh, being stuck on the staircase uh, once again. Struggling to get free. Uh, this came from early, early research we did on, uh, you know, things that were universal in nightmares. And one was falling, one was uh, drowning, one was uh, uh, being stuck in something that uh, didn't allow you to run when you wanted to run. Uh, all of these things, I'm sure, going back to ancient times and probably the La Brea tar pits. This uh, we also went back and reshot. Uh, we had a head dummy that would open only so far and went back and stipulated that we wanted one that would open up so far that it could swallow Dylan's head All this work done by KNB who uh, really delivered magnificently This is a, a, another part that was enhanced from the original. Uh, it used to be that they just shoved Freddie in and uh, closed the door. And our test audience said that Freddie died too easily. And we sort of agreed, so we went back and shot uh, uh, two days of, of just uh, tongue business here with uh, this extraordinary re- sort of resurge of energy on the part of Freddie. And uh, this very, very sort of frighteningly intimate attack that he does with his tongue and Dylan's ultimate uh, vanquishing of this sort of... Uh, ...lingual snake-type uh, thing. Heather, I think, said this was one of the most difficult things for her to shoot... ...this uh, this slimy thing being wrapped around her head continuously... Uh, ...for, uh, you know, two shooting days. Is now Freddy's a uh, movement now away from being just Freddy and moving towards uh, the revelation of himself as sort of the primal monster that he that he is and that he moves in and out of. Again, uh, you know, a long series of morphing shots uh, to attain this. We also went back and built a miniature set uh, that we blew up before these shots, uh, to, again, to give a, a sense of uh, sort of grandeur to the ending. That uh, was the first time I'd ever actually used miniatures in one of my films. Worked out, I think, very nicely. We even introduced the miniature elements into the uh, final explosion here in, in that painting, and this. This uh, ending scene, uh, interestingly enough, was shot very, very early in the film. We had no idea exactly what they would look like. Um, there were big debates about how wet Heather should be and everything else, but we sort of just took our best guess. But uh, one of the a great example of uh, how films are shot out of sequence, and you're, half the time you're just guessing what physical and mental state people will be in that uh, you know in the film uh, from coming out of the scene just before that you haven't shot yet. We also uh, had several revisions on how this scene ended with the script, um, the final version being just my note to Heather saying, thanks for having the guts to play Nancy one last time. At last, Freddy's back where he he belongs. Glancing back through the script, you see actual descriptions of scenes that we have shot and are in the film. including a sort of doubling of the uh, line that Dylan says, so once it's in the script and once it's the line that he says, is it a story? Is it a story? Who knows, really? One interesting point was that uh, we did not have uh, opening titles in this film. I I felt like um, I wanted this film to have an element uh, of a documentary to it, um, and that to have titles up front would be to openly declare this is a movie and not reality so um, i early on told newline i didn't want to do that and they acceded to that so um, it's an interesting point because a lot of people when they watch it keep waiting for the titles to come on but uh, to me it was important to save all of that until the very end when uh, it wouldn't interfere with the concept that uh, exactly what is the reality that we're dealing with here is it a documentary is it uh... is it a film is it scripted is it about real people Um uh, And that, uh, I think, uh, was maintained by not having opening titles that said, you know, this and that, or starring such and person, because uh, you have very much a feeling like, wait a minute, I'm watching, I I know this is the real Heather Langkamp, that's the real Robert England. so is this film about just a documentary, or what is it? So that was one thing that I uh, was very, very happy to uh, you know, maintain through the making of the film. Since we had not done head credits, and there were no, uh, for instance, the the directing credit was not uh, in its proper place, uh to show the script page with the title of the film on it was construed by the directors guild of america uh, to be um, a presentation of writers credit before directors credit and so uh, i had to go into the directors guild actually and have a uh, have a special meeting with a, a special committee including robert wise and other directors that i was completely in awe of, and uh, explain them to that uh, you know this was not a typical uh... and and therefore to show the writer's name was to show really not only the director's name as well, but uh, to show a a key prop and, uh, you know, a key notion of the film, that uh, the script was the sort of driving engine behind uh, things, and therefore it had to be shown at the very last. Otherwise, we would have had to cut that shot and uh, I think a a key element of the film would have been lost. But uh, fortunately for uh, our minor, minor corner of film history, they very quickly granted us an exception but normally uh, one would not be able to show the name of the writer at the end before you show the name of the director. Just as at the beginning of the film, the director's name must be the last one shown. Yeah, we originally had also several titles. The original title was uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 7, The Ascension. Um, New Line did not want to use the the number 7. It didn't want the film to be thought of as a sequel, probably wisely so, so we ended up ultimately just calling it Wes Craven's New Nightmare. More or less starting up where you ended and um, uh, ending up with the uh, sort of theme of circularity in life and uh, the sort of intertwinedness of between art and dream and cinema and reality. I think for myself personally, it's one of the one of my favorite films that I've ever done. I we had a system of uh, artistic freedom in the sense that New Line gave us great freedom to do it. The only Way we would have to share in the uh, in the cut would be if the film didn't score below a certain level in test screenings, and as a matter of fact, it scored uh, hugely above the uh, the cutoff point in this test screen. So we ended up with final cut, and since the film also was not censored, it's in many ways the most intact of any f- any of the films that I've made. It's also probably in many ways the most personal, and it was a great joy to do. Uh, you know sort of a reprise of a film that I'd done 10 years before that was so successful and and uh, to bring it back to a very personal level that included uh, the lives of myself and my friends and in such intimate detail and yet in, I think in, in a way that's uh, that's interesting and entertaining it was a great way for me to come back uh, you know uh, there, there were many business struggles uh, between myself and New Line Cinema in the course of the 10 years uh, you know lack of control, lack of uh, payoff and participation in in the residuals and so forth that were remedied by the making of this film. Uh, Bob came back to me and uh, really um, preceded the whole project notion by saying, let's let's get back on a good footing and let's uh, let bygones be got bygones and and uh, what what complaints do you have, and let's let's uh, remedy them. So all of that was done in a very forthright and and uh, good way. and uh, you know, went into this film having not only artistic control but good participation and uh, so it was done with a a great amount of enthusiasm and sort of uh, a sense of uh, bringing things full circle in a sort of a in the in the uh, arenas not only of artistry and uh, filmmaking but also in the in the sense of business and personal relationships between myself and Bob Shea and Sarah Risher. so all in all this has been uh, I think it was a very a very healing and a very um, um meaningful film for all of us who participated in the making of it myself Marianne Maddalena uh, everybody in my office and uh, everybody associated with, like Heather uh, and John Saxon. So I hope people enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it because it, uh, it was a lot of fun and I think it'll be around for a long time.